Well, our series title for the second half of the book of Acts is behind me on these two uh, banners. It's been forward, the mandate, ministry, and mission of the church. And that is the all-encompassing picture that we're seeing throughout the book of Acts, that the church is called as an institution designed by God to continue to move the gospel forward uh, to reach um, the nations, to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. And we see that the church uh, today is an extension of what God has always planned the church to be. From the very beginning, he's called us to be a church that is moving forward. And so this morning, we're starting a a mini-series, kind of falling under the umbrella of this larger series, and it's called Breaking Through the Barriers. And the reality is, is in any endeavor in life where you want to move forward, where you want to make progress, it's inevitable that you're going to encounter some barriers that would try to prevent you, maybe some obstacles that would hinder you from moving forward. There is a prominent emphasis throughout the book of Acts on the fact that Christ actually has designed the gospel to break through any and every barrier that would come against it, that there is no power that is stronger than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the message throughout the book of Acts is that God is breaking down barriers through Jesus Christ that separate human beings, and in so doing, he is creating a one new man called the church. He is bringing people together in Christ Jesus. And in Paul, in, in this city called Philippi that we're going to look at, really expresses this in some very clear ways for us this morning. You see, Paul is continuing to move the gospel forward as someone who is so committed to Jesus Christ. We've seen his first missionary journey, which was to the region called Galatia. All of the churches there make up uh, this region called Galatia, and Paul wrote a book to them in the New Testament called Galatians, and now we see him moving out of Asia, moving into new territory, geographically speaking, launching into a new continent to an unreached people in Europe, and we find him ministering in a region called Philippi. Paul would write the book of Philippians to the group of churches that would be birthed out of this. And in Philippi, Paul looked for what some church planters refer to as a bridgehead. Uh, Two authors who wrote a book on church planting, they explained that in military operations, a bridgehead is formed when troops successfully land behind enemy lines and are able to establish a small defensible foothold which is expanded as more and more troops join the force. The first foothold is the bridgehead. You see, Paul is parachuting into this place, into this city, Philippi, and what he is after here is a bridgehead, a place where troops can be gathered and mobilized and begin to spread out further and further, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. Paul shows us that the gospel and the people of God were meant to break through barriers. Reminds us as a people of God, as people committed to the church of Jesus Christ, and I trust that's you this morning, that the church will not stop, that God, through Christ, is building his church. Barriers will come, and the first barrier that could have prevented this mission going forward is geographical. And so what we see quite literally in this passage is a commitment from the Apostle Paul to gain new ground, to keep advancing forward, to go where he has not gone, to fight where he has not fought. And I would just want to convey to you that this really is the essence of the Christian life, that we are to be breaking through barriers in our own lives personally that would hinder us from living fruitfully and faithfully for Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of barriers, sin barriers that need to be broken through. There are other hindrances in our lives that are preventing us from being and going where God is calling us to be and go. But as a church, I want to say to you too this morning, that as a church, there are barriers that could prevent us from doing and being what God has called us to be. And Paul reminds us here that both as individuals personally and corporately as a body of Christ, we are called to break through the barriers and the first, first way we need to experience this is this, to have a deeper commitment to gain new ground. There needs to be this deep desire to gain new ground, to keep moving forward and I wanna read our text and then I wanna unfold this for us this morning. So look at God's word with me, verse 
11 in chapter 16. Luke writes for us, he says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here is Paul launching out into this unfamiliar territory, a desire to gain new ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever it is for you individually, and whatever it is for us corporately as a church, gaining new ground begins with this, being mindful of the path God's taking you. We need to be able to see how God has been working in our lives, the path that he has been taking us along. And the first two verses really describe for us, I love that Luke, he wants to document the pathway that they traveled. And I think this is intentional for a number of reasons. One is because it reminds us of the historical reality and truthfulness of the word of God, that these events actually happened. And we can look and trace the steps of this missionary team But I I think it serves us in another way. It serves to remind us that every one of us as followers of Christ, those committed to the cause of Christ, are on a path, we're on a journey that God is leading and God is directing. Luke writes this letter for us as a historical account and he he tells us that they had a direct voyage to a city called Samothrace and the following day they made it to Neapolis and from there they ended up in Philippi which is exactly where they believed God was leading them. As they pressed forward, God, remember in the last section we looked at last week, God had actually been preventing them. You know, Paul, I love the heart of Paul. He just wants to get after the cause. He's so urgent with the gospel, and he's pressing forward, trusting that God's going to lead. And we saw last week that he kept on trying to move forward, but the spirit of Jesus Christ prevented him from going certain directions to certain cities. But but he didn't quit, right? He kept on trying to go this way and the Spirit of God prevented him from going there. And then finally, finally God in a vision shows Paul exactly where he wants him to go. Do you remember the vision he had? At the end of the section last week, we see that Paul has this vision and in his vision, he sees very clearly a man from Macedonia. And in this vision, this man looks at Paul and you can hear the plea in his voice and he says to him, come over to us and help us. Paul instantly knows, yes, God has been preventing me from walking these paths, but very clearly God is calling me in this direction, on this path. And so they make their way from Troas, this port city on the Aegean Sea that opens up the continent of Europe to them, and they follow the leading of the Lord. And there's an interesting phrase. It says that they made this direct voyage to Samothrace. That that direct voyage in the original language is a nautical term, which means this, that the wind was at their back. In other words, I, I think we can take this as another piece of evidence that God was pushing them along exactly where he wanted them to be. It took them two days to get to this place. And well, here's, here's why... This is significant because in Acts chapter 20, here's what we're told. We're told that the return voyage takes five days. I just wonder as Paul and Silas embarked on this journey, convinced that God was calling them there, that God was just giving them some subtle reminders. Hey, I'm with you. You are not going alone. I am leading you. I am pushing you forward. Philippi was a fascinating city. You know, we look at the path that God is taking us and we need to sometimes pause and think about where God has us currently. And Paul lands in Philippi with Silas and this is an incredible city. It is filled with rich military history. It was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. It had since become a Roman colony, as the Word of God tells us here, and there was a a long history of significant battles being fought in this place. It was a noble city. It was filled with rich culture. 
Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire there and its citizens were exempt from paying provincial taxes. I mean, who wouldn't want to live there, right? It had an important agricultural industry. It was a strategic commercial location. Its gold mines were famous and it had a famous school for medicine. I mean, this is Paul loves these kind of metropolises, right? He saw here such an incredible opportunity that God had presented. Paul always wanted to go to the major cities because it was there he knew that if the gospel began to spread amongst the people who had gathered there from all around the country or the world even, they would take that message and spread it back from where they came from. Luke calls it, did you notice what he says there in verse 12? This district of Macedonia, Roman colony, he calls it a leading city. That is so, so important for us to grasp. Paul believed with all of his heart that God had led him down this path that was landed at this moment in history for him right here in this very strategic city. You know, it's, it's been said, don't ever forget where you came from, otherwise you'll never remember where you are going. I'm just reminded by this that the book of Acts is a history book. It is designed by God and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And part of the reason it was written and preserved for us was to allow the past workings of God to fuel our present obedience and future confidence in God himself. We can look at this book and see how God had planned so strategically the life of the church and the moving parts that all had to connect so perfectly and we're reminded that though we can't see all the time what God is doing, we can be assured he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's good, I think, for us to pause every once in a while and every so often and reflect on how we got there. My wife Sarah and I, we do this every once in a while. We, you know, we're so amazed at the grace of God in our lives and, and you know, sometimes, sometimes we can kind of gloss over that. You know, we get so used to where God has us and the blessings that he's given us and every once in a while we just intentionally pause and just say, like, how did we get here? <laughs> you ever do that? Like, man, like, how did we get here? Do you remember, do you remember where we were? Do you remember who we were? I just think there's a healthy aspect of pausing and being able to look back, and I think that on two fronts. Look, I think individually, personally, maybe you can just do that for a second right now. Just pause for a minute and think back across your life. How did you get here? I think in the life of the Apostle Paul, you know, we look at Paul, and at this point in the book of Acts, we can, we can almost forget who he was, can't we? Remember who Paul was? Remember just like, like, not even 10 chapters ago, the apostle Paul was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, he was this Jew who was rising the ranks. He was studying under the most famous, gifted rabbi at the time. He had a life ahead of him in the Jewish religion. I mean, he had the fame and the accolades, but listen, he was an enemy of God. And he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He had just finished helping stone Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and now he's on the Damascus road. He's getting ready to throw people in prison for believing in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ himself arrests him on that road. And you think that was a pivotal moment in his life? I mean, do you remember, do you remember who you were before God saved you? Some of you, that hasn't even happened yet. You're living in this pre-Christ, but I'm praying today is the day where you see Jesus Christ and you can say, today is the day, and I look back at my past and say, this is who I was, but this is who I am now. But can you remember that? Can you remember what that life looked like? Can you remember what it was like to live as an enemy of God, hating God, not wanting anything to do with God, and Paul, I mean, you fast forward through his life and you can just see how not only was he saved, he was embraced and you know, Barnabas comes along and he, he loves on him and he cares for him and he introduces him to the church and that God begins to teach him and prepare him and give him ministry experience. I mean, we've already walked through his first missionary journey and all of the ups and downs of that and it just reminds me, you know, sometimes, and for many of us, life has not been easy. There's been a lot of knocks along the way. There's been some hard and challenging things that we've had to experience. But as we look back at the past, I wonder if you could see that God has been leading you and guiding you. 
Even in your most sinful moments, God has been in control. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, what about my past life of sin? And, and how can I still be useful to God? Like we saw last week with John Mark, God loves to take our sinful past and redeem it and make us trophies of his grace. Everything in your past has been leading you toward the present. And the path to the present may have been filled with plenty of success for some of you, maybe, it's been filled with many mistakes. Maybe it's been filled with tons of victories and maybe it's been filled with many defeats, but through it all, we can see God's providential leading and directing. I'm reminded of this as a, as a church. You know, we look back at how the church has been birthed in Acts chapter two and now how it's being grown and God is beginning to raise up local churches all over the place. I think about us as a church and you know, last night I had the opportunity to sit with some friends over dinner and a meal and I'm asked the question, I'm asked this often, you know, what's, what's next for, for Harvest Durham? And you know, by that people mean like, when's the building coming, right? And I just, I just had me thinking, you know, I, I can't hardly talk about what's coming and, and I believe there's a lot coming and that's gonna be unfolded, by the way, in the next a handful of weeks as a church. I think God has a lot in store for us as a church and future facility. We had this prayer meeting this past week and calling out to the Lord and we're wanting to see what God is going to do and how he's gonna provide and where he's calling us to. And, and yet, I, when I think about that and I had a chance to think and reflect last night a little bit more, I can't help but think about what God has in the future for us without looking back to how God has brought us to where we are. And, I, and I, I was able to share just a little bit. You know, I remember meeting around the corner from here in the basement of a house with 20 people calling out to the Lord, God, would you raise up a church? God, would you allow us to be a presence in this community? God, we believe you've called us here. Now do something beyond what we can do in ourselves. And we have watched God for seven years now work and grow and deepen our love for him and bring countless people, many to faith in Jesus Christ, many people who already knew Christ, who loved and wanted to partner and be used by God. And I can just sit, sit back and I just watch the plan of God unfolding. And look, I, I am so convinced of this, it is not an accident. God has been so carefully and providentially leading and directing us as a church, getting us to this place right here, right now. You know, all of your past, just like us as a church, has been leading us, listen, to consider where we are at right here, right now. We live in this moment, and you have to believe that God, whatever he's done in your past, has been wanting to prepare you for right here, right now, to live for him, to live for his glory, and beyond that, to look from the past to the present to the future, and to be asking the question, God, where are you taking me? How might I be more greatly used by you? Paul, I love it, he just has this history and this past and he's seen God lead so specifically and I trust that maybe even now you're beginning to see how God has been knitting your life together and where God is leading you. I believe with all my heart God has brought us here. You know, God brought Paul to Philippi, the strategic city center. He knew he was gonna have a reach there and an impact there. He believed it with all of his heart. Can I just tell you that I believe with all my heart God has strategically placed us in the Durham region because there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are flooding into the Durham region who need to hear Jesus Christ. We're watching God just expand the Durham region more houses being built, more people moving in, ethnic diversity, which is awesome, and just the opportunity that God has given us as followers of Christ, as a church of Jesus Christ. Believe that God has us here for a reason, church. Believe individually that God has you here for a reason and that he wants to use you. Gaining new ground begins with being mindful of the path God has taken you so we can be mindful of where he has us and where he's leading. Secondly, Gaining new ground requires that we be strategic in the place that God is calling us. It's not enough to understand that God has brought you here. That's the beginning that is so critical and it's so important. But if we grasp that it has been God's leading that got us here, we can understand that we need to be far more strategic and intentional in the place where God has us. I find it so interesting in verse 13, at the very end of verse 12, we read this, that they, they land in Philippi in this district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and notice this, and we remained in this city, it says, for some days. Now, does that strike you at all as a little bit strange when you think of the personality and the ministry of the Apostle Paul? I mean, I don't think he can hardly remain in any place for one second without sharing the gospel. 
He is so urgent when it comes to the things of the Lord, and yet what we see here is that he doesn't haphazardly rush into the city and rush into ministry. You're saying, Paul, you had such a clear calling to this place. What are you waiting for? And Luke simply tells us that they remained in the city for some days. Why? Why Why are they moving at this point a little bit slower than what we're used to? Here's why, I think. Because they are preparing. They're praying. They're planning. This is all so intentional. There was strategy involved in accomplishing the calling of God on their lives in the place that God had brought them to. You know, I'm convinced of this. You know, there, when we look at the Word of God and you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there is nobody, I don't think, in all of Scripture who believes so firmly in the sovereignty of God than Paul. Do you believe that? I mean, he has written so deeply about the sovereign control of God over all things. You know, he, he believes it with all of his heart, and yet when we look at Scripture, I'm convinced of this as well. There is nobody who is more strategic and intentional when it comes to reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that just ought to remind us, listen, that a firm belief in the sovereignty of God does not negate hard work and strategic planning in reaching people for Jesus Christ. I think we can learn a little bit from from the Apostle Paul, and you'll notice what it says in verse 13. I want to draw out three requirements for being strategic from verse 13. Notice this, it says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. First thing we can note from this is this, strategic thinking. Strategic thinking, I think if we're going to gain new ground and if we're going to be strategic, it requires first strategic thinking. I love the phrase that's used here. You notice this, it's on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside, I love this phrase right here, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. You catch the implication of that? It means that Paul and Silas were thinking about where they might find some people who would want to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There was a thoughtfulness, there was a care, there was an intentionality involved here. They had this planned out, and we know Paul's evangelistic strategy is, is very simple in one sense. He goes into every city, and he first looks for a Jewish synagogue, and then he goes to the Gentile people. And so here's what he was thinking as he goes into Philippi. Okay, we've we got to figure out where all of the synagogues are. Maybe we can plot it out on a map. You know, he's got his whiteboard up with Silas, and he's you know, just putting out, okay, there's a synagogue here, here, and here. But he looks at Philippi. You want to know what he realizes? Hey, wait a second here. There's no synagogue. Okay, okay, there's no synagogue. Well, what do we know? We know what the rabbis taught. They taught that, uh, uh, first of all, you needed 10 um, men, 10 men who are heads of households. They're required if you're going to have a Jewish synagogue. So what we see here, the women meeting, there aren't enough men to make up a legitimate Jewish synagogue. And so we know that if that happens, we know the rabbi said, you go down by a river somewhere and you meet outside and you kind of, you do what you can out there. You see the thoughtfulness required? And so here they are. They're supposing, because there's no synagogue, that they're gonna find them believers down by a river. Maybe they, maybe they did a little bit more digging and they, they found out exactly where they were meeting. Either way, they get to this group of women who are meeting outside and so what can I learn from that? Well, I, I think we can learn a few things. One, we need to be thoughtful. And here's what we need to be thoughtful in. We need to go where people are, are willing to hear us. Paul was so intentional about this. He knew he wanted to go to the Jews first because he would have uh, willing ears, ears that were ready and prepared. Right? These people already believed in the Old Testament law of God. They already believed in one God, and so he wanted to go and open the word to them and explain the truth of the gospel. I think we can learn this too. Uh, we so often expect God to be dropping people on our laps where we need to be more strategic, and we need to go make sure we're going out to meet people where they're at. 
There's a point of contact that he establishes here that I think we can learn from, right? Paul is always looking to find people at a point of contact, a place where their lives intersect in some way, a place of relatability, and so it just made so much sense to go and meet the Jews first. There was so much they could relate to. For us in our culture, we, we too wanna try and connect with people at a point of common interest. Maybe it's a point of felt needs, or maybe it's an area of commonly held religious convictions. We need to think about meeting people where they're at. Where would they be willing to hear? Where would they be prepared to meet? And I, mean, I was thinking about this. You know, on our street in the summertime, a lot of the adults on the streets, tons of kids on our street. In the summertime, the parents put all the kids in bed and, and the, the parents go out on the, the, one of the driveways. They all bring their lawn chairs and they sit around and they talk for hours into the night. And I'm just thinking, like, what a great opportunity to go and sit with our neighbors and to maybe tell them a little bit about what we do and what, we're, what we believe. Some of you may find points of contact in sports that you play. I love there's, there's people in our church who are engaging with people over their hobbies or sports that they're playing and meeting people at the gym and sharing Christ and inviting them to church. Uh, there are people who are meeting other couples at parks and talking to them about their kids and then you know, branching into the church and coming on, come on out. And I think we just need to be more strategic in our thinking. Secondly, notice this, we need to be more strategic in our timing. Our timing. Notice when, not just where they met, but when they met. Paul was so intentional with the time. It says that on the Sabbath day, I mean, they knew. They knew that the Jews were always meeting on the Sabbath. They knew that the best and most appropriate time to engage with these people was on the Sabbath. And so they were gathered together, these women. And they were already opening the word. They were already praying together. They were already thinking and talking about God Almighty and so here is a, a perfect opportunity, a perfect place, very few distractions, perfect timing. I mean, there is so much going for Paul here. I think timing is crucial in our engaging with people. I mean, you probably know what it's like, right? Have you, you ever been there where, where you're trying to maybe get out the door from work really quickly? You have some place to be and your boss says, hey, can I just talk to you about something really important? You're like, uh, can this wait till tomorrow? I think timing is so important. We need to be very strategic in our timing. Oftentimes, we're guilty as Christians. You know, I, just, I wanna encourage you. You know, we, we wanna share the gospel, but oftentimes we force the gospel into conversations instead of, you know, making sure we have the right time to be able to maybe unfold the gospel for people. You know, so we're having conversations with people and we're saying, hey, hey, did you see Cast the Leaf game last night? Oh yeah, that was a great game. Hey, did you know Jesus loves you? Hey, uh... <laughs> Okay, see you later. And, you know, and we walk away from, hey, I just shared the gospel with somebody today. I'm, I'm doing really well. It, it just as in life, listen, when we want to have an important conversation with somebody, what do we do? We usually think a little bit about it. We usually want to make sure our, our calendars and our schedules are lined up. We send an invite to somebody. We plan it out. I think while we uh, embrace the organic nature of evangelism. Listen, you need to hear that. So much of our evangelism needs to be organic in the day by day, moment to moment, meeting with people, engaging with people. I think sometimes we can miss that we can be more proactive and effective in our evangelism if we would strategize a little more, if we would plan a little better, and if we would work hard at engaging with people in this way. That might mean for some of you that you need to plan to have some people over for dinner. Maybe you want to be strategic in your timing in terms of inviting people to come to a, a special service, maybe Easter or Christmas. Some of you are here because somebody was very strategic in inviting you at a time when you would consider coming to church, Christmas or Easter. It might mean that uh, you've got to take a coworker out for lunch and you need to pay, by the way, <laughs> instead of having you know, a real quick conversation at work around the water cooler. Look, the point here is this, that they knew that this was an opportune time to engage with people, and they knew that they would have substantial time to engage with people. Our right, third thing here is this, we need strategic teaching. And this just really quickly, I love here, it says that they sat and spoke with this group of women 
Sitting and speaking was the normal method of teaching in the Jewish synagogue. It's likely that they sat for an extended period of time. I mean, Paul would have been expected as, as someone who is a rabbi. He would have been expected to be called upon to do some form of teaching. You can be sure of this, that when Paul sat to teach, here was his strategy. I'm going to open the word of God, and I'm going to explain the word of God, and I'm going to show them from the word of God, Jesus Christ. In fact, here's what you, we know for sure, and I think we, we don't see this happening because at this point in the book of Acts, Luke already assumes that you know every time Paul is meeting with Jews, he is taking them to the Old Testament. He's explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's showing them how the, all of the promises of the Old Testament converge in Jesus Christ, that the whole world, really the universe, the purpose of history revolves around Jesus Christ. I think Paul clearly presented the reality of the gospel. I think he talked about their need for a savior, Jesus Christ. I think they, he showed them that they were sinners. You know, you, you know you're a sinner today? Some of you are like, well, what exactly did Paul share? I mean, what do you mean? What do you mean he shared the gospel? What is the gospel? Listen, the gospel is very simple. The gospel is that you and I are sinners and we're estranged from God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all turned our backs on God. We've all missed the mark. None of us have lived up to his perfect standard. Not one of us. And that has driven a wedge between us and God, a wedge that we, you know, a gap that is insurmountable, humanly speaking. And we're punished by God by death, an eternal death apart from Jesus Christ. But the gospel is this, that though we were sinners and though we couldn't rescue ourselves, God loved us so much that he came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. He satisfied the wrath of God by walking to the cross, by willingly giving his life, by dying in our place. He said, let me take their punishment, God. I, I wanna save them, they, they can't save themselves. I'll take it all for them. And then he rose from the grave and he defeated death. He conquered sin. And he says that anybody who repents of their sin and puts their faith in me, who believes that I did for them what they can't do them for themselves, will be reunited with God the Father and will have eternal life. It's the only hope of the world, and that's the hope that Paul strategically taught every time. It's likely that Paul, by the way, tailored his teaching to his audience. He never compromised the message, but I think Paul, we see this throughout the book of Acts, is very aware of the people that he's preaching to and he's speaking to. He knows he's speaking to a group of women. I just wonder how he might have maybe tailored his approach and talked to them so clearly about their value and their importance to God. I remember going to Nepal to do ministry there and to do some teaching and having to learn the culture a little bit, having to get a sense of their struggles and the issues of their life. And listen, it's so vastly different from what we experience. And to really, truly engage with them and to meet them where they're at, I had to put myself in their shoes. I had to learn a lot about them so that I could give the gospel and share the gospel and, 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 and apply the gospel to different areas of their life that would be more meaningful and more helpful to them I just say to you, the strategic teaching needs to be intentional, needs to take time. If your primary ministry is going to be speaking to people who are atheists, it's a really good thing to learn a little bit about atheism. If it's going to be Mormons, or if it's going to be secularists, or if it's going to be Hindus, or if it's going to be Muslims, it's a really great thing to learn a little bit more about those uh, religions and that, the cultures of different people, and it's just so much more helpful to engage with people. And you know, this is one of the greatest ways we can show love and care for people. We need to anticipate from people common questions and concerns and objections. We need to have these things thought through so that we can be more effective in the way we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be willing, we need to be ready, we need to be prepared. And we need that so we can do this. Thirdly, notice this, be faithful to the people God's bringing you. God is calling us to be a, a faithful People and gaining new ground requires a high degree of faithfulness on our part. We see in verse 14, look at God's word with me. It says that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Stop there for a minute. We're being introduced to this woman, Lydia. She's amongst this group of women who are being taught by Paul the things of Jesus Christ. And I love it. God has brought this faithful woman to hear. And I just want you to know, this could have been a massive barrier to the Apostle Paul. 
You see, in ancient cultures, especially, women weren't highly valued. They were underappreciated. They weren't viewed in many ways as being on equal, uh, equal footing with men. At this point, Paul could have, maybe in his flesh, come across this group of women and this woman in particular and said, oh, I don't, <laughs> walking into a group of women, Lord, I don't think so. Uh, where's, the, where's the leading men around here? I mean, we, I wanna go after some of the more influential people in this culture and this society, and, and I don't have time to waste with the women over here. Like, give me somebody who's gonna be more beneficial to my ministry. Give me somebody who's a little bit more like me. It's not the way we so often think. There's got to be somebody better, right? There's got to be somebody more influential. And I think we often think like this. And I, I think, too, that I'm so thankful that Paul here doesn't treat these women like second-class citizens. You know, every Jew were taught all the Jewish men were taught to pray a prayer every day. Paul would have been familiar with this prayer. He would have prayed, Lord, thank you that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. I love Paul. He, he knows his culture. He knows what he's been taught. But he also knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knows the gospel breaks through these barriers. And they will not stop the movement of Jesus Christ or the church of Jesus Christ. I love that when we look at scripture, by the way, women play such an important, a massive role in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where the culture and society devalues women. Jesus raises women and he places them on the same playing field as men. He says both are created in the image of God. Both are made by him and loved by him. Both are valued by him and both are useful to him. Isn't that awesome? Because even in our culture today, women are not as valued in many places as men are. I, I was reading an article recently that, that highlighted this reality, and, and many of you may know this, but you know, in China, with the one-child-only policy, the amount of abortions of little girls is astronomical. You know, they highly value a male child, especially in the one-child-only environment and there's millions and millions of little girls have been aborted. In fact, it's such a huge, it's an epidemic and right now they're saying a whole generation of, of Chinese men will not be able to, to marry a Chinese woman because there's a short, such a shortage, such a gap. God looks at women and, and you women need to hear this in here and he says, you are useful to me, you are valuable to me, and Paul just models this so beautifully, and God says, I wanna use you in great ways. Paul treats these women with the utmost honor and respect. He reminds us too, listen, but beyond women, he reminds us that it's often the least likely who can make the greatest impact in the kingdom of God. You know, where our flesh says, well, God, just save the really important people. Save the really rich people. You know, save the people who are of good pedigree. I mean, doesn't it remind you of 1 Corinthians, right, where Paul says this on the screen behind me. He says this, for consider your calling, brothers. It's not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many of you were of noble birth. He says, look around, none of you are really that special. It's like, I, I didn't save you because you, you were very impressive, right? I didn't save you because I'm like, whoa, here's what I can't do without. Like, man, I mean, everything's gonna come to a halt if I don't save this guy. But look, why, look, why, why then? Why did he save? Why does he save the lesser? Look at this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, God says, I'm gonna save the unsavable, humanly speaking, so that everybody knows that salvation is not a work of your own doing, it's a work of Almighty God. It should be a reminder to us that sometimes God brings people across our path that we aren't really looking for or not, we're not really expecting. You know, the least of these, the least likely to be praised by our culture and society, often it's those exact people that God's saying, that one's mine. That one's mine. We don't get to pick or choose who God sends our way. But we do get to choose if we will be faithful. 
Besides, I think it's so comforting. When we look at this, I just want you to know, God knows exactly what he's doing, okay? God knew exactly what he's doing when he saved you. You need to think about that for a second, right? You were amongst the people that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians. You're not that special and neither am I worldly speaking, but guess what? God chose you and he knew what he was doing. He did not make an accident. So when he sends Paul to this group of women, God's like, oops, I didn't mean to save those people, Paul. I wasn't expecting you to actually go to them. It's the opposite. God says, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly who I want to save. I've got this all figured out. Paul had no clue who Lydia was. He didn't know that she had any resources. He didn't know that she was a wealthy woman. He didn't know she had a massive home that would eventually become the place where the church would meet. He didn't know any of this. He just knew that God, in his grace, had led him to this group of women, and God had placed these faithful followers in front of him. Did you notice what it says here about Lydia? That she was a God-fearer? She was like Cornelius. She was a Gentile who believed in the Jewish God but hadn't converted fully to Judaism. And so here is a woman, here's what you have to see, that God had been working on her heart already. God had been tilling the soil of her heart and so often when God brings somebody across our path, we have no clue what he's been doing in their life. We have no clue the circumstances that brought them there. We have no clue what he's been doing to soften them, to hear the message from us. Sometimes we can be so pessimistic, like, oh, God's not going to save that person, or, I don't know, this person doesn't really fit the mold. They don't really look like God could do much with them, and God's like, I've been working on them. Just be faithful. You see what God does with her? Did you see what the rest of the verse says in verse 14? And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that. Now, listen, this this is no, you can't use this as a proof text for falling asleep in church, okay? The Spirit didn't keep me awake to pay attention to you this morning, Ian. But what you have to see here is so important. Here is Paul being faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel. And as he's proclaiming the truth, look at how God uses the message in the messenger. It says that the Lord is the one who opened her heart up. The Lord was the one who allowed her, enabled her to see, to understand, and to believe the truth of Jesus Christ. And did you know that that is true of every single one of you who follow Jesus Christ? The reason you are here is because someone, listen, somebody was faithful, weren't they, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you? And just get this, and God was faithful to open your heart. Oh, did you see how beautiful that is? So that no one may boast before the Lord? Well, why are you here, Ian? Well, I was pretty special and uh, I chose you. Actually, you're not very special and I chose you. Puts everything in perspective. Such a beautiful thing. And isn't there such an encouragement here, church? Listen, isn't there such an encouragement? We just know this. We know that as we go out and be faithful, we can entrust the work of God of opening hearts to the Lord God Almighty. You never know what God is doing, how God is working on the heart. We just need to be faithful, keep preaching, keep sharing, and let God be faithful to save. Lastly, you want to gain new ground. Be intentional with the provision God's giving you. Be intentional with the provision that God's giving you. I just, I love this picture of Lydia. She's such a wonderful woman of God, and you see the evidence of her conversion so quickly in her life. Verse 13 says, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, in other words, if you have seen that that my conversion is real, that it's authentic, that I haven't just given lip service to making God my Lord, you know, I haven't just walked an aisle or raised a hand, I want you to see, in other words, that my life is different. If I've proven that my faith is the real thing, Come to my house and stay. I mean, she prevailed upon us, he says. She really went at this hard, okay? She wasn't taking no for an answer. You know those kind of ladies, right? And men. She's just, you are coming to see. Like, this is the least I can do for you. I just want you to know first, as we shift our focus maybe off of Paul for a second, let's look at Lydia again. Notice first the provision of salvation that God had given to her, and I want you to notice how intentionally she responds to the saving work of Jesus Christ. God miraculously 
saves her. And as in the case with, with those who are truly saved, look, God begins, here's what happens, here's one of the evidences of salvation in a heart. The desires of the heart begin to change. I mean, look, you don't just become godly overnight in the Christian life, okay? I mean, it's not, you can't expect that. Once you're saved, all of a sudden, everything's different and everything's better. That's not the way it works, but here's what you can be assured of. If you've truly given your life over to God, if you've surrendered, we use this language, surrendered your life, surrendered your heart, what happens is this. You give control over to God, and his spirit takes control over you, and the first thing that begins to change is not necessarily external, it's internal. The desires begin to change. Where there was no desire for the things of the Lord, there begin to become desires for the things of the Lord. Where there was no love for God, there begins to grow a love for God. Now this can be quenched and you can sear your conscience and you can do great damage to the desires in your heart by pursuing the things of the world and pursuing the sins uh, and the, the desires of the flesh. But I, I think it's true that every person who comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ begins at this place where God begins to produce evidence that begins in heart desires being changed. And that the evidence of the Spirit of God inside her begins to be manifested in three specific ways that I think is really a normative for every follower of Jesus Christ. Here they are, and I'm, I'm gonna phrase them um, in a way that's more directed towards us. Notice this first, a publicly profess Christ. When you're saved, you publicly profess Christ. That's baptism, that's right here. Did you notice that one of the first responses was to be baptized? You're baptized, being dunked in the water and being brought up out of the water. And this was obviously so clearly taught by Paul in his ministry, so clearly connected to the gospel. You say, why is that? And what is baptism? Well, baptism is the sign of what we call the new covenant. It is the external picture that you have been brought into the family of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews had a covenant sign as well. The covenant sign was circumcision. And circumcision was a reminder that you were born ethnically into the people of God. And so God marked you as somebody who was a part of his family. Do you see how that works? Now listen, when we cross into the New Testament, the new covenant trumps the old. It fulfills the old. And there is a new family of God that is being created amongst Jews and Gentiles alike. And in the same way, listen, in the Old Testament, it was ethnic birth. In the New Covenant, it is a spiritual rebirth. So if you're a follower of Christ, you have actually been born again. We use that language right out of John 3. Born and birthed into the family of God. And so as an identifier that you have been united to Christ, that he is yours and you are his, what is required of believers, Jesus said this, right, to go and baptize people, Baptism is that external evidence of an inward transformation. The water symbolizes the new birth, the new creation, and it symbolizes the washing away of the old. The sinful life is gone. You're buried, you go under the water and you're buried with Christ. His death was your death. You're united in his death. And as you're brought out of the water, cleansed, listen, listen, you're brought into new life in Jesus Christ. That's the picture. And I love that Lydia here, she wants to publicly profess this. She wants to make it known. She has to make it known. Listen, uh, listen, baptism is, biblically speaking, one of the first steps of obedience in the Christian life. She knows that and she believes it and she does it. And for some of you here, listen, some of you here, you need to be baptized. You need to publicly own the reality. You need to publicly celebrate the reality. You need to publicly declare the reality that you are no longer your own, that you have been bought with a price. And just coming to church isn't enough. God has given us this picture for a reason. I just want to encourage you, if you're saved, if you've, some of you have been saved very recently in the life of our church. Some of you have been saved a long time and have been putting this off. And I just want to tell you from the word of God, you can no longer do that. It's time to publicly de declare that you are his and he is yours. She does that, she publicly professes Christ. Secondly, notice this, she eagerly shares Christ. And this is such, again, it's such a beautiful example to us, this eagerness to share Christ. You notice that after she was baptized, just notice what it says, uh, and her household as well. This chapter, uh, we're gonna hear this reference to household salvation very often in this chapter. We first heard about it with Cornelius. See, Cornelius, when, when Peter came and preached the gospel to him, he gathered everybody into the room to hear the message of Jesus, and everybody who believed in Jesus, all of his household who believed, were baptized. 
Now, I, I love this because we see this happening so quickly in Lydia's life. I mean, isn't it true? Don't you love to share exciting things with other people in your life? Isn't that true? I share the dumbest exciting things with people all the time. Like people are like, oh, I don't really care about that. It's exciting to me. I gotta tell somebody, right? But listen, listen. When it comes to salvation, there is nothing more precious, nothing more exciting than what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Can I get an amen? Somebody, please. Like, like, like do you really believe that? Like, it is exciting. God has redeemed us. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We will no longer go to hell and pay for our sins. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. I mean, and this is, this is the heart of Lydia. She understands this. And like us, when we get excited about something, and especially something like this that is so valuable, so important, we have to tell the people we love, don't we? That's the first people we go to. And that's what we see throughout the Bible. And the first people we love, I hope, <laughs> family. She, she wants to go and she wants to share with her family. It's likely, by the way, that she is a widow. There's good evidence to support that. And she go, I think she wants to tell her every person she can, aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews and children if God had given them and servants who are living in her house. She just has to share. And by the grace of God, God uses her, I love this, uses her to win others to Christ. Did you know this? Sometimes we're so hesitant as new believers to share Christ, but did you know if, if you know the gospel, if you've been saved by the gospel, you have enough to give to somebody else to be saved. You don't have to have all of the right answers. You don't have to have every aspect of theology sorted out. You just need to know what saved you, and you need to tell people about it. I just pray, I pray, I pray this for myself, right? That our salvation, regardless of when you were saved, that God would continually stir in our hearts a freshness a joy in our salvation, a reality of how undeserving we are so that we might be compelled to go and tell people about Jesus. Here is this woman. She does this so beautifully. And lastly, she doesn't want to just share Christ. She wants to eager, passionately display Christ. You know, and the two go hand in hand. It, it is, listen, we need to be those who will passionately preach Christ, but we need to be those who passionately display Christ. And one of the greatest evidences of a changed life is behavior. Our actions begin to demonstrate that inward reality of what's taken place. And here we see that this display of Christ happens for her primarily at this one example in hospitality. You know, the ministry of hospitality is not just a spiritual gift, although it is. It's actually a Christian requirement. And by the way, it's, it's a response to the gospel. Uh, hospitality is a way in which we express the gospel in very practical ways. You have to think about the, the parallel here, right? Uh, hospitality is welcoming people, embracing people, and caring for people. Listen, in the gospel, listen to the gospel, God flings the door of his home open to us. And everybody who was an enemy and everybody, right, who, who was estranged is invited in and embraced in the household of God where we are loved and cared for, where we are protected. I mean, you can just, can you just see how the gospel influences the way in which hospitality is to be expressed in our lives. In fact, this is so tied to the gospel that Paul, after preaching... 11 chapters in the book of Romans about the deep, rich, beautiful theology of the gospel. He gets to chapter 12, which demonstrates the practical realities of the gospel in our lives. And one of the things he says is, is this, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Pure expression of the gospel. Hebrews 13, too, you want a little more motivation? This could be helpful. Uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You might, you know, that's, that's pretty compelling. Show, show hospitality to some strangers sometime. Maybe God's put an angel in your house. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's the way God does it, doesn't he? I was like, oh, great. I got I to gotta care for these people again. Just come on in. I love it. I love the picture of the gospel. And we see here just such a heart of generosity that is birthed in this woman, a heart to serve, right? She understands the generosity of God in the gospel. And I love, she just, she looks at these men and she's so thankful for what they've done and what God has done through them. And she says, look, the least I can do, you've just cared for my soul. The least I can do is give you a warm meal and a place to stay. And I ain't taking no for an answer. 
Her generosity would extend well beyond this. I, I mentioned that already. You know, they believe that the, the church actually began meeting in Lydia's home. And one of the things you need to know is Lydia um, was a seller of purple garments. Paul didn't know this at the time, but uh, this was an incredibly, incredibly a wealthy trade. And you see, purple was for royalty. It was for those who could afford it. It was very expensive. And so Lydia was involved in a, an occupation that actually would have made her incredibly wealthy. She had all these resources. She likely had a, a very big home that God had blessed her with. And what we see is this, as God opens her heart to the gospel, listen, she opens both her home and her hands to the ministry of Paul and to the ministry of the gospel. John Wesley once said that the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. I love that with Lydia, the open wallet is right away. You know what that's saying? It's, you know what she's saying? She's like, look, all this wealth that I have, my hope is not there. My hope is not in the things of the world. Everything I have has been given to me by God. It's a gift from Him. All of this is the provisions that He has blessed me with. And now I see that I have been given this so that I might use it for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Are these three things true of you today? Are you publicly professing Christ through baptism and are you eagerly sharing Christ? Are you passionately displaying Christ in your life, hospitality, generosity? A bridgehead has been established. There are now troops successfully behind enemy lines able to establish a small defensible foothold which will then be expanded as more and more troops join the force. The church would begin meeting in Lydia's home starting right here with this woman. God would begin building the church in Philippi with faithful followers committed to the ongoing work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would come alongside this church in Philippi and they would become one of the most avid supporters of the apostle Paul. They would become one of the most generous churches supporting those in desperate need. In fact, in the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote to them, he ends the letter with this to them. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know yourselves how that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me except for you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then he ends with this. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Like Paul, they were a people committed to breaking through the barriers by gaining new ground. And my prayer for you today is that that will be true of your life and that that will be true. Listen, loved ones, as a church, would that be true of all of us? God has been taking us down a path. Listen, both individually and corporately as a people. God has taken us down that path to be strategic in the place he's called us, right here, right now. To be intentional with the provision that he's given us and to be faithful with the people that he's bringing us. That's what's required of us as we continue to move forward, as we continue to press on, and as we strive to be gaining new ground. Let's pray that God makes us faithful and empowers us to do this. Lord, we believe that you have called us to this. God, you have proven yourself faithful time and time again. We're reminded, Lord, that you have providentially orchestrated the events of our lives. You have redeemed, Lord, the broken parts of our lives. You have given us hope in Jesus Christ, and you have called us, Lord, to this time, this place, to be a light to the nations.
God, may we be a faithful people. May you help us, Lord, to be a people whose hearts are set upon you. Lord, where the things of this world no longer grip our hearts and the love of this world no longer captures our affections, but God, it is you, it is your gospel, and it is your kingdom that consumes us. God, as we close our time together, we pray, God, that you would work within us mightily, Lord. We know that there are things and obstacles and barriers that are preventing us from being the people that you call us to be, and we believe, Lord, with all of our hearts that the gospel is stronger and greater and more powerful than any barrier. So, God, would you provide for us great breakthroughs? Would we gain new ground for you and for your glory? And, God, as we close by singing this final song together, Lord, would the lyrics be fresh in our hearts and minds? God, for all you've done and all you've yet to do, we worship you. Receive our praise now, our faithful God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.